You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Okay, my guest on the Freedom Pact podcast today is presenter, journalist, host, author, Adrian Childs. Adrian, welcome to the Freedom Pact podcast, my friend. Thank you very much indeed for having me. I'm I'm, I'm honoured, given the uh, given the kind of people you normally have on. I don't feel I don't feel worthy at all. No, don't be silly. So your first your new book, The Good Drinker, behind me here. Yeah, we're going to talk about that today. But wasn't the first book of yours um, I read? Being even though I'm from the South Wales Valleys, I'm actually a massive West Bromwich Albion fan. Um, you are. And, I am indeed, yeah. My oh my god, I thought I knew every West Brom fan individually. <laughs> Turns out there's one more. Um, <laughs> you know, yes. I, when I was living in Cardiff, I used to travel with the South Wales branch of the uh, the West Brom supporters mm. club. And it was the Williams brothers from uh, from Bridgend who ran it at the time. One of them, I remember, had a one of his hobbies was making things from matchsticks and he had a matchstick battleship which was his pride pride and joys made as a teenager and he was older than he was in his 30s by then and one after a bad result he stewed on it all the way back to bridge end mm-hmm. from birmingham which is you know, a couple of hours at least and when he got <laughs> he said i've normally calmed down by the time i got home when he got home he took the he took the battleship Mate had a matchsticks into his back garden, threw lighter fuel over it and torched it <laughs> just to <laughs> just to rid himself of the bad feelings. But um yeah. Yeah, I can I can definitely relate. I've made a couple of trips up uh, to the Hawthorns and it's always a long drive back after a disappointing yeah. result. But um yes, a couple of years ago I was gifted um a copy of uh, We Don't Know What We're Doing. Yeah. And um a very very fascinating insight to to football even if you're not a, a West Brom fan like we are this well, it was about the psychology of football fans why they you know why some some people I think it, I've come to believe it's kind of genetic why some people are massively into football and and some aren't and why some develop these loyalties to teams and then you know, just there's all you know people who were sort of in hospital dying, but all they could really think about was West Brom and whether they were going to get relegated or not, and 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 so on. So, yeah, it just it just fascinated me. Drinking actually was a big part was a, a big part of the of that first book. I mean, it's going back twenty years ago now, but not quite that long. We're not far off, and and it was just the number of people who stopped going there was one lad who some he was a male nurse from Birmingham and he'd gone it was just getting too much for him um going every week and the drinking was a massive part of it so he actually emigrated and went to went to New Zealand um to get away from the Albion but even then he would wake up at three o'clock every Sunday morning at kickoff time which would be 3 a.m 3 p.m back home and you just automatically wake up and listen to it on the radio, you know. So go, yeah. go figure. Yeah, it's it's crazy because I think 
you know, for a lot of people, their their club is obviously where they grew up. They have that attachment. But for me, I've got no attachment to West Brom as a place. My dad um, is from Pontypridd, and mm. he just so happened to support West Brom because they were good when he was a kid, um, yeah. and he brought me up to support them. So I've got no attachment with the actual place yet. If they lose a football game, which at the moment they do quite a lot, yeah. it ruins my weekend. So it, okay. it's really well, weird. I think it's very good parenting on your dad's part. <laughs> I'm, I must say. Well, but yeah, yeah, I get it. I mean, my dad tried to put me off it, but 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 uh, but didn't. it was my granddad I've got to blame. But anyway, <laughs> so going from that book um, to this book now, we're going to get all into it, but. I guess a good segue would be, I mean, you, you alluded to it there, they, obviously drinking is a big part of, of, of football culture. Um, what part did being a diehard football fan have to play in you, uh, you know, developing a relationship with alcohol and, and it leading to a, a problem? What, what part did being a football fan and football culture play in all that? Um. Well, I mean, as a kid, obviously, it never occurred to me to have a drink mm. going to football. You know, when my granddad used to take me, you know, when I was a teenager, it really wasn't part of it. And he said, I haven't really thought about it, but I suppose it was in my 20s. Maybe it was university in my 20s where going to the football seemed to involve drinking. But, you know, if you if you've got some kind of relationship with alcohol where it's just a massive part of your life, then it's kind of involved in every aspect of your life. I mean, that's what it, it, this book was supposed to be a, a self-help book. Really. Um, was The working title was how to drink less, but then it turned into more of a memoir as I sort of went back and tried to establish the roots of my well, I suppose you call it dependence on alcohol, just the ubiquity of alcohol in my life. It just every friendship, everything you did, you know, every dinner you went to, every relationship you had, alcohol was always part of it. So I suppose it's logical that football would become part of that. And as I came to drink more, you know, I'll be going earlier and earlier to matches just because I could drink loads before. And the crack was often good. Sometimes it boring, sometimes it wasn't. But you know, before long, I just realised I was just drinking a massive amount generally, but I realised how much I was drinking around football. Yeah. Um, at the start of the book, you, you make a couple of points, and one of them is that you say if you lined up all the drinks uh, you drunk in your sort of 40-year drinking career, going back to your teenage years, that the line would be three miles long. And yeah. when you put it in that, um, you know, when you when you give that sort of image to someone, it really does does make you think and so what was the moment when did that first click in your head and is it hard because having a drinking problem doesn't necessarily you know mean it's something very visibly obvious you know it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be you know homeless out on the street with a bottle of booze in your hand well i think uh there's a lot to unpack there i mean firstly Firstly, just on that image, that's just something I came up with on the back of an envelope that it's three, the line would be three miles long. Um, and 
I mean, the, that's a lot of alcohol. And you think of that going through your system, through your liver. You think, what have I been doing? But for me, the bigger tragedy is, is when I think, well, how many of those drinks did I really enjoy or want or need? You know, and I've, you know, it's less than half easily. It's probably about a third. So it's all the wasted drinking, you know, that just the pointless drinking. What You know, I was doing it because I couldn't think of anything else to do. You know, I'd be in the pub. It was eight o'clock, wasn't closing time to 11. Nobody went home. So you sat there, you carried on drinking. I remember, you know, forcing beer down, forcing wine down for no for no good reason. It was just it was just mad. So that's I mean, that's. I mean, that's key, really, because all I've managed to do is take away the pointless drinks and just stick with the drinks I want, need or enjoy. In terms of the idea of having a a drink problem, then I would say anyone who drinks too much has got, you know, some kind of dependency on alcohol. But what we subconsciously subscribe to is the Alcoholics Anonymous reading of it, that alcoholism is a disease, um, which I don't really subscribe to. I'm not saying they're wrong. I just think it's different. And I just think the problem is if you consider alcoholism as a disease, then a disease is something you either have or haven't got. So it's quite easy to be drinking a massive amount like I was, up to 100 units a week. But because I wasn't waking up in a shop doorway or, you know, or, or wetting the bed or drinking in the morning or getting arrested or any of that kind of stuff. But, well, I haven't got this disease. You know, that's that, that's just not me. And, you know, and, and, and I think I think that's sort of key to understand that's not to say people haven't got serious dependence issues and need to quit completely. But I'm not sure it's a disease. I'm not sure it's helpful to think of it like that. So you say that, you, you know, you learn to, to love drinking more by by drinking less of it. Um, yeah. This is something that I, I noticed. I, I've worked in gyms and, and sport um, my entire career so far I've, I've helped a lot of people um, with their fitness journeys and diets and things yeah. and it's a similar thing when it comes to food or, or sugar and, and people you know they, they become so used to it that they're eating these foods that they think they love and they're not even mindful about the taste they're not mindful about you know what it, what it, what it does for them and a lot of people say that it's not until they you know start um counting their calories or, or cutting back on certain foods that they really appreciate the taste of things again there's almost yeah. a mindfulness that yeah. comes with it yes it's like mindful eating is is analogous to sort of mindful mindful drinking you know there is so much pointless eating just like there's so much pointless pointless drinking in fact i mean my bigger issue really is food actually you know in terms of you know, with, with drinking, people always say, a lot of people say, oh, I've got no off switch. Once I start, I can't stop. But actually, even when I drank a lot, that wasn't really the problem. You know, come 10, 11 o'clock, you know, I'll be off to bed. I wouldn't necessarily have to be out half the night. But with food, when I start, I can't stop. I've really got to take a long look at myself. It becomes kind of a compulsion. Mm. And the more you eat, the more you want to eat. And I think that's similar to drinking as well. The more you drink, the more you want to drink. 
but the more you have, you appreciate it less. So, yeah, just you know, it's just simple common sense. It's not some great revelation. The less you drink, actually, the more effect it will have on you in the end because your your tolerance to it will reduce. So you'll enjoy it that bit more. Just for a bit of context for everyone listening, before we dive into some 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 more threads, yeah. here, what did your relationship with drink look like? I don't know, maybe five, ten years ago versus how it looks now on a weekly basis. Well, I just, I mean, in terms of my sort of relationship with drink, I try, in a way, I, I mean, I do consider that, but I, I just sort of measure it in how much in how much I'm drinking and i'm drinking you know i'm drinking half as much a quarter as much because before i was drinking mindlessly you know and i don't think when people looking at me would notice that much difference but it was just every day it was just you know if you have a couple of pints most evenings with a mace you know more evenings than that i'll meet my mate around the corner have a couple of pints then go home well you know, if you if you're doing that, say five days a week, and then add to that, you know, a couple of proper nights out and maybe a long lunch one day, you're soon up past fifty units a week. Yeah. You know, and I just, you know, I just got to come to terms with that. Making a TV program about it when even on the first day's filming wasn't a big drinking day. That was, I mean, that was just around foot. That was around football. It was an early kickoff at West Brom. I had four pints in the pub beforehand, which is on the high side for me before a game, but not unheard of. And then went to the game, didn't drink. It was an early kickoff, didn't drink anything in the afternoon. And then went to my friend's birthday back in London in the evening. A couple of glasses of champagne, you know, best part of a bottle of wine. And then had a pint later for no good reason, you know, because somebody put it in my hand. And I counted that that was just when I started filming the programme. And and I counted all that up, and that was 37 units, I think, in one day. And it didn't even feel like a big drinking day for me. I wasn't drunk. Mm. You know, it, I didn't think, oh, what a bender that was. You know, it just it was just kind of normal. I thought, blimey, if you're not supposed to drink more than 14 units a week, ye gods, you know, what am I in for? Then I realised how much I was drinking. Yeah, and that's interesting because one of the things um... – the tips you you give in the book is you say that you have to know your units. So would you sort of recommend the the very almost boring sort of admin tracking work for anyone wanting to cut down on sort of anything? Like, do, you, do would you agree that you you have to do that work? I think you have to. Yeah, I think I've met people who've moderated their drinking successfully. You haven't, but I think it's important to just track what you're drinking, just, you know, to let yourself know what you're doing. And you can't reduce it. You can't reduce it if, you know, without knowing what you're reducing from, you know, and when, you know, could we go to the doctor and you get into this flipping pantomime of, they ask you how much you're drinking. You profess not to know what a unit is. The doctor tells you, you then come up with, the lowest number you can possibly come up with with a straight face, and then they double or treble it anyway. You know, but, you know, doctors have got to, you know, really. Say, I wish a doctor had said to me, and I don't blame the doctors at all. Listen, they said, "Come on, I need to know how much you drink. Don't make anything up. Just tell me. Don't worry, you're not going to die. I just need to know." Yeah. 
And I think we all need to know. And it's only by doing that. You can work out, you can have a look and think, well, I didn't really need them. Mm. I didn't really particularly enjoy them. Why was I doing that? You know, and I think that that's important. You mentioned um, the doctors there, and there's there's a very interesting part, um, and I think this applies to everyone in sort of any situation. We, we we sort of tell ourselves lies and say that we're aware of all these warnings, we're aware of all um, you know the the things that could happen, the side effects, but we always tell ourselves that these things don't necessarily apply to our ourselves. Yeah. Um, what was that experience like for you? What what lies did you tell yourself? Um... What I tell? I told myself, well, a big one was it doesn't get me into trouble, which it doesn't. And part of my problems was, you know, it didn't, it didn't really, it didn't really affect me that much in any obvious way. I mean, I tell the story in the book as the and a former MP I happened to play golf with, and I was telling him about making the documentary, and he said, "Oh, uh, I don't drink much. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with hangovers." And that's the right way of looking about it. You know, a hangover is just nature's way of telling you to drink less. But, you know, I never had that. I never really had hangovers, you know, could work through it. So that was one thing. I mean, a big thing, a big thing I'd say to myself is, yeah, but I do a lot of exercise. So somehow in my head, subconsciously, I must have been thinking, well, I'm I'm sweating it all out. When I sweat, when I, I exercise, I'm running marathons and everything, then I'm sweating wetting the badness, the toxins out of me. I mean, it's just, it's just, oh, shit. You know, it's still, it makes no difference, really. I mean, you're better off doing the exercise than not doing the exercise, but your liver and everything else is reacting in just the, in just the same way. Um, you know, I'd, yeah, I'd just say, no, I'm not a problem drinker and, you know, but I was realising that I was dependent. I mean, if you, suddenly realize I'm drinking basically every day and drinking something, mm. then, you know, I think that's, you know, I think it's a, um, you know, I think you've, you've just got to look at yourself and say, well, do I really need this? Mm. You know, how can I say I'm, I haven't got an issue when, you know, I can't imagine life without it. You recall um, a conversation in the book with uh, Frank Skinner where he was, yeah, sort of horrified to hear um, you describing how you would dread a social situation that you should probably enjoy if you yeah. knew that you couldn't drink there. Yeah. In those situations, those social events, what did what is, what did the drink provide you that being sober didn't? I don't know. You don't... It's difficult to say. You know, it's so... It's so hardwired after 40 years of it that... It might be that it doesn't give you anything. You know, it's just kind of what you do. And when you really think about it, you think, well, what is this nonsense? This is mad. Do I really need this? I suppose, on the other hand, I suppose it's all the obvious things, you know, just loosens you up a bit, you know, it's part of the bon of me. But, you know, yeah, if the following morning I could say I've had a great time. And, you know, you kind of credit the drink with that. Yeah, we did a lot of drinking. It was great. But, I mean, I probably had a great time because I was with all my closest friends mm. all having a good laugh together. Yeah, but the drink has convinced you that you need it to have a good time. And 
you know, you've got to you've got to be you've got to be sort of mindful of that and think, hang on, this might be a complete nonsense. Just sort of have a word with you, have a word with yourself. When you reached the point where you thought, you know, you, you may look down the route of um, AA or, or AA meetings, was that something, was that a decision that you came to um, on your own or was it a, of the suggestion of somebody else? Um, I thought it was on my own, talking to people. I mean, there was, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't go to AA because by this time I'd done some I'd looked into it and I thought, hang on, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think I have this disease alcoholism, but though I wasn't sure, but I thought I suspect, I think, I didn't think that was a helpful way of looking at it. I just thought I needed, I needed to cut down. And, um, and I was just sort of casting around for, for some ways to do it. I think AA doing, you know, do an awful lot of good. Um, and I, and from the one AA session I went to, I really, you know, I was really, it was a gobsmacking thing. And um, I learned, I learned a lot from that. But I mean, there's loads of just little things people said to me, inspired me to go. I mean, there's one, there's one, a friend of mine who, who drinks a lot. She said, oh, you know, when I don't drink, the world is kind of a beige kind of place. And that really made me think, God, that's a terrible thing to say. And because I believed it, you know, that's how I felt as well. Mm. And I just thought, in even sort of channeling religion a bit, I thought, well, this is God's green earth and the sky is blue, the trees are green. It's not beige. What is this madness if I think the world's beige without alcohol or my friends aren't as funny if I don't drink with them or they're not as funny if they don't drink when I am drinking, what is this madness? I've just got to get a grip, you know. I've got to. I'm saying, don't drink, but you know, you know, who's in charge? Is it you or the drink? You know, it's about asserting some control. You're obviously very, very open about this, um, and I know you may have only been to say one uh, AA meeting, but I imagine it's a, a very vulnerable situation to be in, where you have to openly admit. Uh, to yourself and to other people that you have a problem. Um, obviously, this goes, yeah. uh, you know, across the field. But people, you know, with with maybe gambling problems, they they often find it hard to admit because there's almost, you know, there's a shame, there's a stigma attached in that once you admit the, you know, you you have to admit your own faults, and that's quite a vulnerable uh, position to be in. Did you find it hard to admit and talk about it once you realised that you oh, had I a didn't. problem? Well, I didn't, but. I suppose I felt as if I was demonstrating I was on the way to solving it okay. at the time I started talking about it. But I mean, I never felt, I never felt kind of a stigma about saying it because I don't know. I just got a lot of people related to it. I thought it was important to say, I don't, you know, and I thought, and I still basically think, you know, people don't judge you or anything on it, but, you know, so I, you know, I just thought it was important to share it, and I didn't feel any great shame. I suppose the hostage to fortune here, slightly, is that. You know, so I mean, the book's called "The Good Drinker." You know, so what happens? Don't know if I have a car accident or something. You know, now I don't drink and drive, so but 
people would think, oh, yeah, he was probably he had a drink. Or I got into a fight. That wasn't my fault, maybe. And I think, well, you know, he was obviously drinking. And also, and I had this I had this conversation with somebody the other day about mental health, about, you know, people saying, oh, there's a shame, there's stigma. I said, no, there's not. Everyone talks about it all the time. But I've realised I was wrong in one key element. Is that in my business, which is I'm a freelance sort of writer and broadcaster, basically. Now, in terms of getting work, people either want to like what I write and what I broadcast or they don't. So they'll pay me to do it. Now, they don't care, really, whether I've got ADHD, whether I'm a massive drinker or whatever. It's not a big concern. But if I was in the kind of if I was in the kind of work where I've got to go for an interview for a job, let's say I tried to go into banking or something. Or any kind of corporate job where they've got an HR department and they've got, you know, somebody from HR and there's a couple from the company and they're looking through and it's, yeah, blimey, I mean, this bloke, he's got ADHD. He's admitted to drinking 100 units of alcohol a week. Can we take a risk on this fella? It'd be a completely different conversation, you know, and and I didn't realise that until I was talking to somebody the other day. It was in the context of ADHD, actually, and the... and. And he said, and, and it was, you know, he got quite offended when I said, well, oh, there's no stigma. He said, that's bollocks. There is basically, you know. So, you know, I think you've got to be, you know, honest with yourself and those around you. And if it helped anybody, you know, to recognise, I mean, it helped a lot of people realise, look, I drink too much and it's not doing much good. And just because I'm not waking up in a shop doorway doesn't mean. I haven't got an issue here. You mentioned, um, just to sidetrack that, you mentioned ADHD. Is that something um, that was diagnosed uh, sort of later on in life? Yeah, it was up? late in life. I was about, it was about three and a half years ago now. Oh, wow. um, and I had quite a bit of, I used to suffer from anxiety and depression, which, by the way, alcohol didn't help, mm -hmm. I'm sure. And um, and so, and then it was eventually suggested I'll perhaps go, for, you know, be tested for ADHD. And then I saw read a, you know, I, I thought it still might be nonsense. And I read a book. I read a book called "Delivered from Distraction," an American book, which I just thought by an American psychiatrist. Where it was like reading my own life story back. It was just incredible. And I showed the. Um, and there was a there was twenty key symptoms of adult ADD in the book, and there were three people I showed it to: my daughter, my colleague, and actually my PA. And um, and and they, I told them what you know that the doctor said I might have ADD, and they went ah rubbish. But then, all I showed all three of them this couple of pages from the book with the key symptoms in, and all three of them went. Yeah, you've got it. Yeah, go and get yourself sorted. You know, it was just seemed so obvious to them. But I haven't sort of tried to relate that to my drinking. It was just too, but I'm still trying to get my head around the whole business. And it's really helped being diagnosed. And it's a root of a lot of things, whether it's the root of drinking or whatever, possibly. But, you know, I just don't, you know, I don't know. I couldn't say. There's one... Um... 
thing you mentioned in the book you, when you talk about um, uh, sort of tactics, there's a lot of self-help stuff in there. This is one thing you mentioned. You say, see your life as a rotating circle. You should find yourself at its center. I wonder if yeah. you could just elaborate on that for the audience. Well, I just it was just an image that came to me, and it's along the lines of, it's along the lines of what I said about, you know, who's the boss? Are you in charge of the alcohol, of the drinking, or is the drinking in charge of you? It was, it's along those lines. I just think, you know, if you're, you know, if your life is a wheel, you should be the center of that wheel, the hob of the wheel, and all the things going on in your life, your family, your friends, your, you know, and all the rest of it, you know, are all part of that rotating around you and you're at the middle of it and you try and do the best you can for all of them but i just think that it was an emotional thing really going back over my life and really to the extent that you know it's 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 sort i've got this image of alcohol a drink being at the middle of that wheel and everything sort of revolving around that you know yeah i'll yeah i'll see my mate but you know we'll have a drink or you know i'll take the kids out but we'll go to the pub so I can have a pint and or, or whatever mm. go to the football you know and so on I think and I just thought that's wrong you know it's it's got it's got it's had too much of a, a role in my life I mean there's an old guy who says said something in the in the book about academic sociologist in his 60s or possibly older and he said you know we need to take take alcohol off its undeserved pedestal in our lives, which is a one way it's sort of, you know, it's a bit of a mouthful, but actually, yeah, he's right. The undeserved pedestal. Yes. Beer will solve everything. Yeah. It's revolve around that. Um, you know, I mean, the other big thing, and I'm sure you'll get around to this, but just I sort of make sure I mention it. The, the really big thing that staggered me and it, it was long after I made the documentary. It was only thinking about the book that I got to it was that, you know, there's this 14 units guidelines, you know, which is, you know, seven pints of beer a week. Now for a big drinker, that doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound, that sounds like nothing. So you ask, I promise you, you ask most drinkers, what percentage proportion of all drinkers do drink 14 units or less a week right and the answer you'll get usually people will say nothing none i don't believe any drinker drinks less than 14 units a week but i mean the you know the the, the, the research tells us it, it's 70 percent of all drinkers so most drinkers are drinking within the guidelines and even if you allow for a vast margin of error, I think we're safe saying more than half are drinking within the guidelines. So this is important to remember because big drinkers like me, one of the reasons, one of the excuses we give ourselves for drinking, we go, well, everybody drinks loads. It's just normal. But it's not, it's not true. You think it's normal because invariably you will only hang out with other drinkers. Yeah. You know, when I went to university... Let's, you know, then you choose. I went away, went to London um, to university. You choose a new group of friends effectively. Now, let's say I met 25, uh, 25 friends, straight acquaintances, university. There's not one who wasn't, you know, didn't drink a lot like me. 
Mm. Now, I took that to mean everybody drinks, but in fact, it's because I chose them and they chose me. You know, you hang around with people who really like yourself. It's the power of social norming. Yeah. So, you know, it's a bit like lockdown. If you thought everyone else was complying with the rules, you thought, well, oh, yeah, so will I. Mm. But if you thought others weren't, then you thought, oh, sod it, I won't. Mm. So I think it's really important to remember that if you're drinking a lot, fine. But don't go around saying that everyone does because it's just not true. Yeah, it's interesting because when, when I was at university, um, I ne I had never drank um, at this point. I, I, I don't really drink. But when I was there and I was with my flatmates that I was put with, everyone was, you know, drinking, getting to know each other. And they noticed that I wasn't drinking. They said, well, what? why aren't you drinking? I said, I don't drink. And they'd say, why? As if, yeah. you know, I had some sort of big psychological problem that stopped me drinking, whereas I just, the reality was I just didn't drink. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, that, look, that fascinates me. It fascinates how hard it must have been sort of not to take part in it when everyone yeah. else is doing. And I, I can't, I, you know, look, I salute you. You know, um, I mean, I wonder how many people get dragged into drinking a lot. Yeah. You know, unless a man like you would have ended, you know, you you just could have been sort of talked into it. Mm. And those people, I'm, I guarantee, if they were drinkers like me, they thought, that's a bit of a weirdo. Yeah. Doesn't drink, you know, there's something wrong with him. Yeah. You know, what's the matter? What's the matter with the lad? How, you know, his life can't be normal. How can he possibly, you know? You know, it's just, it's just, it's just madness. But that—that's how drinkers like to feel. They don't like to see somebody who's perfectly normal and sociable and friendly and good-looking like yourself. Who, hang on, you can be like that and not and not drink. What's going on? You know. So, so you never got talked into it. Then. Um, no, I, I, it's just one of those things. I, I never really started. Um, when I was young, I had quite bad like social anxiety. So I was yeah. never in the um, social situations when I was younger where everyone was going out drinking. I'd prefer to sort of stay into my own company. So I sort of never got around to it. And then by the time I got to university, I just hadn't drank any alcohol up to that point. Yeah. <clears throat> and I thought, well, I, I thought there's no real reason I should probably start now. Um, but yeah, like like you said, a, a lot of the people I'd live with, they would try and say, oh, well, just try this or, um, you know, go on, give it a go, you'll love it. Sort of, yeah, they, yeah. they, they do try and sort of... Um, and did you ever, uh, did you ever have, have any? Um, no, not in those situations. I've probably had, I've tried it maybe once or twice in my life, but I've never been drunk. Like, I've you know, I've had like half, yeah. you know, half a drink, you're there just to get a taste or whatever. But no, I, it, it, it must be bizarre reading my book then. It's because, really fascinating. I mean, no, but I mean, it must be bizarre. You think, well, this is lunacy. Mm. You know, a lot of big drinkers will read it. I might flatter myself and think, yeah, blimey, this is me. But you must be thinking, who are these people? What's the matter with them? No, it definitely is fascinating just to get, you know, the mm. a, a different perspective on it. Um, obviously, I, I, I take no sort of, there's no sort of moral high ground in not drinking. Yeah. It's just something I just never happened to do. Um I don't think it's you know makes me any worse or any better than anybody else. Um, it's yeah. just very very interesting to me. I think the other the other aspect is that a lot of drinkers, I sympathise with this, will look at the fourteen units thing, and the reality is they're drinking three or four times that. Yeah. So they look at the fourteen units thing and think, oh no, I can never get that low. Sorry, I won't. 
because they don't know what they're talking about. I'm not going to do it. So they don't bother. They don't bother, you know, they don't bother doing anything about it. Um, you know, that that's a shame because, you know, if you can cut down from sort of 50 units to 30 units even, that does you an awful lot of good. Yeah, You're doing yourself an awful lot less harm. Mm. In fact, drinking, going down from 50 to 30 relatively does you more good than dropping from, say, 30 to 10. You know, um, yeah. you know, it's so, you know, it's it's just it, it, it's it's always worth. There's a marginal gain available here. It's just like everything you can do to drink a little less, you know, will, will you know, will, will help. And just because you can't get to 14 isn't a reason to just not bother trying. Absolutely. I we've had. Uh, the sports psychologist Bill Beswick um, worked with Manchester United on this show, yeah. and he talked um, a lot about um, Roy Keane and how he's yeah. such you know a straight talking man. He told some brilliant stories. You yeah. have your own uh, story you mentioned in the book um, where Roy Keane told you something about drinking. Yeah. How well, did no, that impact just, you? Well, no, it's just Roy said I. I it, I'd stopped drinking for Lent and I happened to be with Roy around his house in, in, in Altringham. And he said the thing with Roy doesn't drink. And he said, like the thing with drinking is, and he had been a drinker. Hmm. And, and he said, you know, there's always, said there's always an excuse to drink. You can always, you know, get a good day. You have a drink, you have a bad day, you got a drink. You, your kids have done something great. You think the kids have done something bad. If you're bored, drink. If you've, you know, a funeral, great excuse to drink. You know, that, you know, that's if you're a drinker, then everything is reduced is a, is a is a cause to drink. And I, I, you know, even now, I think I've had a word with myself, but I'm still, I'm still a, you know, a, I still to do some of that stinking thinking myself. Like there's a bloke, I know, about my age, and he's had he had some you know, difficult time, to say the least, with prostate cancer. And there was a key, I knew there was a key day where he was found, whether he was, things were really bad or things were going to be okay. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, I'll see him tonight or I'll call him. I was thinking, well, that's good. Before I knew it, I was thinking, well, there's a drink either way because, you know, if he's if it's good news, then he'll, uh, yeah, I'll um, go out and celebrate. If it's bad news, think, fuck it, yeah. let's drink anyway. You know, so, you know, to Roy's point, you know, that is true. And that is also stinking thinking. You know, you got to, you know, there's always, just as an excuse to drink, there's always an excuse not to drink as well. A couple, just a couple of questions left before we, hmm. before we wrap up. Um, I read an article of yours on um, sleep and sort of insomnia. Yeah. And you briefly mentioned that you tried listening to sort of pub chatter tracks yeah. on Spotify. Um, and you, for you, you, you become so fascinated by it that you, you couldn't fall asleep. Yeah. I wonder for people listening who maybe, you know, uh, from, I don't know, America or not really British, British culture where the pub is, you know, such a sacred place. How would you explain the allure and fascination and atmosphere of a good British pub? Um, just, you know, it's, look, you've got to catch a pub that isn't completely empty. 
mm. and isn't sort of standing room only busy. Mm. But it's best. It's just quite relaxing. It's just, you know, a relaxing environment. People chatting. I mean, I, I travelled across America when I was by Greyhound bus when I was 20 with a couple of mates. And I always remember getting back after six weeks away, getting back to where I lived in London. There was a pub across the road. It wasn't the greatest pub in the world by any stretch of the imagination. But I was sat just sitting in there and, there, you know, just people chatting, a bit of a clink of glasses, a fruit machine making a stupid noise and stuff. And, oh, it's just, you know, I just... I just I find it a pleasant environment, but I mean I would also say that I mean the place where I go on holiday in in South Wales spend a lot of time, and maybe this is true of where you, you know Pontypridd where you're from. Now, as a place to go, you know at eight o'clock on a November evening, you want the company of others. Just to, you know, go and, you know, just go and be around other people, have a chat. You know, where, 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 where do you go if not a pub? And in smaller places like the village I go on holiday to, I mean, it shut up for a bit. I went down one Tuesday night at eight o'clock in February or something. It was closed. And that's it. I mean, there is no other option for miles around. You know, there's not a cafe open, not a restaurant, but even if there was, you'd go in and eat. I don't particularly want to eat. You know, where'd you go? I mean, there is a valuable function in there. But then I think they need to find a way of it being about more than just drinking. But, you know, they're a great community asset. You know, they're a great way of people getting to know each other. But yet again... You know, that's my drinker's head on thinking all of human life is in the pub. Whereas most people, well, at least half of people never go inside a pub or club, mm-hmm. you know, so they don't get the benefit of that. But, you know, it's a community resource. I just think they're important places. I mentioned um, that article there, and this is a bit off topic, but I, I did really enjoy it. Um mm. I I've always struggled with with sleep, and I think that stems from um, just my general anxiety. Um, you mentioned uh, that you had this sort of brainwave uh, for insomnia, and I think it's all yeah. to do with a book that you keep. Yeah, yeah. Well, I said I I, I I was a very poor student of English literature, and I grew to loathe a number of authors who I had to read. I, I picked for some reason I picked Henry James, the novelist, to study because his early books I could. They were good. There was a book called What Maze He Knew, which is like a masterpiece. But then I realised his later works are absolutely impenetrable. And there's one called The Golden Bowl, which I, mean, I find it quite triggering when I, I open it and read it. It just, every sentence seems to go on for pages. <laughs> but then I thought, I'm, I'm open it. You know, I keep kept it by my bed so I can open it and just remember how boring it is and get me off to sleep. But I thought I've downloaded the actual... I've downloaded the 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 audio book, and it's read by Juliet Stevenson. Does it brilliant? It's so hard to read. It's almost impossible to read out loud, and she and but she manages to do it. But it's still boring. Oh my god, it's boring. I just put that on, and lovely Juliet's voice, and it just I drift away in minutes. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, 
I mean, the poor woman been through hell recording that, so I'm sure they don't want to market it as a as a cure for insomnia. But you know, it, it works. Trust me. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are endless, mm. endless uh, options out there. I've read a lot of books, and a lot of them have almost put me to sleep as well. So yeah. uh, I resonate with you there. Um, okay, just as we wrap up now, I ask these yeah. questions to, to every guest. Yeah. Um, the book you've written here, The Good Drinker, is going to impact a lot of people. It's going to help a lot of people. But are there any books that you've read uh, throughout your life that have had a big impact on you? Uh, well, there was a book about ADHD, I remember, called, I think it's called Delivered from Distraction. Mm-hmm. I must get that right. Um, that had a big impression. When I was a kid, I read a famous book called um, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Um It was interesting, that. It was all about asking people questions, but I kind of did that anyway. I remember I gave it to a mate of mine. I said, you've got to read this, it's brilliant. And he, he read it, he go, well, the thing is, you you enjoy asking people about themselves. You're interested. I'm just not fucking interested. <laughs> In which case, you know, it's not it's not really gonna it's not gonna work for you. And what else? I mean, there's other I mean, just you know, I got back into reading novels and I mean there's a few that are really you know, you you're really sort of tell you something about human nature so any of le carre's books i know they're about spine but they're about human nature really there's an american novelist called richard ford whose book the lay of the land i just thought was a masterpiece so insightful and that's quite hard to read in the sense that nothing much happens in it but i think he's brilliant and evelyn war as well stuff he wrote a book called brideshead revisited and i found that incredibly insightful about human nature so there are other other bits and bobs Love it. Um, you know yeah uh, great recommendations there dale carnegie my favorite book of all time so i uh, i appreciate that one um the last question i have for you and i ask every guest regardless of the topic and yeah. the answer could be you know anything it could be your work it could be your family it is anything but right now for adrian childs what makes life worth living? Um, what makes life worth living? Uh, well, I've not long been married. I've been married before, but, you know, when you find somebody who, you know, you're not being with first thing in the morning, last thing at night, you know, just hanging around together, that makes life worth living. Um Oh, just being out and about, walking, you know, walking anywhere is just thing important. Just keep moving. I can be a bit manic about it, but just, just sort of, you know, anywhere in the, the urban streets or up mountains or whatever, that makes life worth living. Um, I've got two daughters, 22 and 19. So whatever they're, you know, you know, one's left university, she's doing really well. The other one's got to grips with being at university, you know, and hearing their joy in life, that makes that makes life worth living. If only West Brom could actually <laughs> win some games instead of drawing or losing every week, that'd be great. Yeah. That would just be the, the icing on my cake. <laughs> Me and you both, my friend. And mm. uh, it's a long season ahead. Who knows what could yeah. happen? But um, we've talked a lot about The Good Drinker today. Um, 
by the time this episode is the book will be out um so for anyone listening where can they where can we direct them to where could they best find the book and more from um, yourself well i don't know it's the more from myself well i write in the gut i mean the book could be available in sort of bookshops and online there's also an audio book if you can stand the sound of my voice and it'd be on kindle and whatever usual places and that's for me i'm on the radio i'm on radio five live from 11 to 1 every thursday and friday and other times too and also i write a column for the guardian every week which is you know takes an awful lot of anguish to find a thousand words to say about something every week but you know you know that's great right for the sun as well so i'm generally about somewhere or other amazing well i'll make sure that there's a link uh to the book and uh all those things you mentioned there in the description below adrian thank you so much for joining me today it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure to speak with you yeah. cheers mate and you really enjoyed it